calling Patrick. Do, 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 do. What is going on? I don't hear anything. My sound is very low. Oh, hello. Problem with playback device. Oh, okay, my Skype's just broke. Let's try again. Da, 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 da. Please work, stupid Skype. Oh, please work, stupid Skype. Are you working now, stupid Skype? Hello. Hello, is it working now? Yes, seems to right. be. So what's it like in Estonia today? Well, it can't decide uh, whether to rain or to be sunny. So it's doing both kind of in five to ten minute intervals. But we got our first woodpecker on the bird feeder today. Nice. Like a green woodpecker or the one with the red, the red, black and white one? Yeah, the big giant red, black and white one. The woody woodpecker style woodpecker. I love them. and I love the sound. I love the sound when they start kind of drilling. Yeah, not when they do it on the side of your house, though. Is that what they're doing? Are they woodpeckering on your house? No, not yet. This one was just on the kind of bird ball hung at the window. But he did have a sly look in his eye, so he might have been looking for good pecking locations. I would be I would be torn in that situation if I thought that the woodpecker was going to go on my house between finding ways to stop it and figuring out the best place to put a contact microphone. Well, you know, you can just as easily stick a contact microphone on the tree that they're pecking as on your house, and then you don't have to deal with a hole in your house. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I have, yeah. Can, can I hear them? Are any of them on Apari? Um, I can't remember. You would have to look in Finland. I had contact mics kind of jammed under the bark as well as I could do it without damaging the tree. And then I also had, I don't remember which microphones, but um, probably Omnis kind of strapped to the tree. So I had both um, open air and contact mic recordings of this. It's a dead tree, so it was really hollow, resonant, and the woodpecker was right at the top. Greetings comrades, I'm Felicity Ford, also known as Felix, and you're listening to the Knit Sonic Podcast. You just heard me speaking there with today's special guest Patrick McGinney, and in the background you can hear a woodpecker that he recorded in Finland. You are very welcome to this episode of the Knit Sonic Podcast, which is part three of Knit Sonic 10, um, an episode in three parts dedicated to my Edirol RO9 digital recorder, also known as Eddie. If you haven't already heard episodes one and two, do take a listen. You can find them on iTunes and also hopefully soon on Stitcher Radio too. So how are you doing? I hope you're well. It's always super nice to hear from you when I put out a podcast. And if you're tuning in for the first time, you're very, very welcome. 
if you're wondering what I'm on about when I talk about Ederol R09, I am referring to my little handheld digital recorder, which is one of the inspiration sources in the Nitsonic Stranded Colorwork sourcebook. Um, and it's also the focus of a song, a eulogy, um, which I shared in the first two parts of this podcast. My memories are full of sounds, my sketch pads in wire files From Belgium and from Spain and from walks of many miles The record button's worn down and the headphone jack is bust But when I'm packing for a trip my Eddie rolls a must it, it records the sound so I can share them with you the trees, machines, the hills and seas, a special sonic view. Longer than a photograph, the time it takes to hear. Listening in the time brings all the distant places near. I've got lots of news for you. As you heard in the opening segment, I've got a special guest today, sound artist and composer Patrick McGinley. So there's going to be plenty of talk of sounds and radio and knitting. I want to tell you about using the Knitsonic system to make patterns based on the amazing megastar that is Missy Elliott. This is a Missy Elliott exclusive. I want to tell you about some new recordings I've made for the Knitsonic album. talk about the commission I've been working on for the Museum of Oxford. Uh, I don't know how much time we're going to have for all of this but uh, the main thing is get settled in with a nice project and a big cup of tea or coffee or beer or wine or whatever it is that you like to drink and let us begin. Just uh, waiting for the coffee to boil here and saw that I had a Tupperware container and three elastic bands. gap between the first parts of this podcast uh, and this one has been longer than anticipated. If you read my blog on the domesticsoundscape.com you'll know my sister-in-law has been really unwell. Uh, I travelled to Woolfest back in June and didn't get any podcasting done obviously while I was on the road although I did manage to record the Woolfest sheep and if we met at Woolfest hello and welcome. Um, <laughs> 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 
my own health has been rubbish though that seems to be rebalancing itself finally and I've been working hard on a commission for the Museum of Oxford called the Fabric of Oxford. The last thing, which was a bit of a spanner in the works for the old podcast schedule, has been the acquisition of some ducks. My new ducks, Honey, Bonbon and Pretzel, are amazing, but I did lose a week to building and fox-proofing their special enclosure uh, and getting them settled in. I'm really happy to say my sister-in-law is a lot better now and she's finally out of hospital and back with my brother and their little boy, my nephew Barnaby. One of the awesomest things about working with sound is that you can build custom ringtones for the people you love and my brother's really excited, super excited that Barney has a new word. We don't know if it's Nagunda or Nagunda, but it's really sweet when he says it. Um, and my brother asked me to make a special ringtone out of Barney's new word, which I thought you would like to hear. And I, I thoroughly recommend making special ringtones out of your favourite sounds. It's it's very fun. As I've mentioned, in this final section of the Bonanza Ederol special, I'm sharing an interview with one of my oldest friends from the realms of sound art, Patrick McGinley. By oldest, I don't mean that he's really old. I mean, we've been friends for a really long time. I met Patrick in 2004 through his radio show on Resonance FM, Framework. And I wanted to introduce you to Patrick because he's amazing. And because I think that if you like the soundy aspect of my podcast, then you may also like the Framework radio show and hearing what Patrick has to say about sounds, independent radio production, field recording. My name is Patrick McGinley. I'm a sound artist, a field recordist, a composer, a musician. That's who I am. I work with sound mostly as a sound recordist and composer. And could you say a little bit about framework? Since forever, I had actually kind of had this vague dream in my head of making a radio show. When I was growing up in Boston, I used to listen to a radio station called WZBC. It was the Boston College radio station. And during the day, they played uh, rock and punk and local bands and good indie, kind of indie music. But in the evenings from 6 p.m. till midnight every weekday, they had a show called No Commercial Potential. And then they still do. It still broadcasts every weeknight. And No Commercial Potential just played masses of weird stuff, like just 
things I had never heard before and that became the basis of basically everything I make now and listen to now, just listening to this radio show almost every night and hearing what was going on, put all of these things in my head. And I began discovering the bands I heard on the station and discovering the networks that those bands were a part of and discovering all this amazing stuff. And ever since then, because because everything that I identify with now as, as an artist and as a creator and as a fan came from that, um, I always thought I wanted to kind of give that back and also make a radio show that could hopefully present some of this stuff to, to other people, to other new listeners. In 2001, I met a young Australian sound artist at the time living in London named Joel Stern. Through him, I learned that this project called Resonance FM was starting up in London. Um, it was a radio station run by the London Musicians Collective. They had received a kind of experimental short-term broadcasting license, the first time uh, in the UK that community radio and independent radio had been offered broadcasting licenses. So when this opportunity came up with Resonance FM and Joel uh, mentioned that he, he wanted to put in um, an application to do a radio show, um, I got very excited and suggested we could do it together. And we put together a proposal for a radio show that focused on field recordings, since that uh, was a big interest for both of us. And we got it, and we broadcast our first show on the 14th of June, 2002. And um, it's been going ever since. So right from the outset, the, like the radio mission is very, it's a very long-term part of how you think about sound and how you become really inspired about sound but there's also a kind of community element to it of radio as a kind of focal point for people putting people in touch with each other helping people to hear and find each other and it seems like there's two desires for framework one is to kind of produce a, a place like a sonic place in radio space for field recording sound artists to hear and find each other and then the other is just to hear loads of amazing stuff so kind of sonic and community yeah it kind of works in both ways one thought i had about this this world of field recording when i was first getting involved in it is is that it is a community but a very spread out community um, it's hard in any one physical location to find a lot of people or any people or one person who shares especially if you live in the estonian countryside who shares your interest in, in this kind of work. So, you know, it became quickly apparent that those kinds of communities with the, with the prominence of the internet were organizing themselves in a different kind of space, in a, in a more virtual space than a physical neighborhood. And so the possibility of radio providing a communication point for those spread out virtual communities seemed very real and, and in a different way with, um, with, with the internet and with you know, news groups and mailing lists and with artists and record labels communicating with one another um, from all over the world. You know, that, that's why I, I try to get framework to as many different corners as possible, why it's airing on 12 different radio stations, why it podcasts and streams is not, not for the sake of making it some global entity, but for the sake of being able to draw those lines to all those different places and all those different spaces that are so far apart. Right, because it, it like it, in its since you first kind of put the show out on Resonance FM, it's it's grown and now it syndicates to loads of other 
different stations all around the world as well as kind of being available online and then kind of available as a podcast and a download so it's really it's available physically to hear in different countries but also all over the world through the internet and that said i still i mean my i still have a major interest in it being part of a broadcast schedule it's you know that's why i've always um fought to keep it on, on airwaves not and not not necessarily just fm i mean fm is great and i'm fascinated by it but just the fact that it's it, in a schedule, that it's not just on demand, that it's not just people who've come to look for it, but it's people who have the radio on in their car or in their kitchen while they're cooking and while other things are happening that this, that they can, that it becomes, that it's really about discovery, about the same kind of discovery that I was able to have listening to WZBC as a teenager and not knowing what was going to come up next, that it just be there to be found, not necessarily uh, only by the people who are looking for it. Yeah, right, because you can just stumble across it using like a an old radio dial. Welcome to Framework. Framework is a show consecrated to field recording and its use in composition. Field recording, phonography, the art of sound hunting. Open your ears and listen. Could you explain the framework intro for the Nitsonic listeners so that uh, so that if anybody who's listening to the Nitsonic show is inspired to make an introduction for the Framework show, then they would know how to do it. It's very easy. Basically, every regular edition of Framework begins, I think of it as the opening theme music. Um, it begins with a recording uh, made by you or someone else anywhere in the world in a location of their choosing. Um, you record for a minimum of one minute can be longer. Um, after that time elapses, you read a short text. And then once you finished reading the text, uh, you record for a further minimum three minutes or longer. And that's it. So what we have is at, uh, a minimum four minute recording with a short text in the middle. Uh, the text is always the same, but it is always uh, spoken by a different person in a different place. So that is the Framework Radio theme music. The text is Welcome to Framework. Framework is a show consecrated to field recording and its use in composition, field recording, phonography, the art of sound hunting, open your ears and listen. Um, that's on the Framework website, uh, www.frameworkradio.net. In the menu at the top, there's a button that says intros or just frameworkradio.net slash intros. Um, go there and have a look. You can find the text and scribble it down so that you can keep it with you, so that when you find yourself in the perfect place, you can record an intro and send it in, and it will get used. Um, I've never not used an intro that was sent to me because they're all great, and I always need new ones. So please, Nitsonic listeners, go and record a framework introduction and send it to me.
when I hit framework 250, it, it was sort of a, it was a surprise to me. I hadn't really been counting. I must've just thought, or maybe somebody asked me, well, how many shows have you done? And I thought, oh, I don't know. And I went back and checked and discovered that I was only, I, I don't remember how long it took the project together, but I was only X months away from show number 250. And I thought then that, oh, that's um, kind of a big deal. And that's something that I should do something about. And went to a lot of artists and asked if they would contribute, thinking that a handful of them would, and I would make one CD or two CDs. But almost all of them uh, very um, enthusiastically accepted the challenge. And I found myself with an immense amount of material and uh, Framework 250 became four CDs. It also had quite complicated, in fact, more complicated packaging than this current release. Um, and it was a great project to do and I was very happy with how it turned out. And, um, and I was very happy with how it was received. So from that, I decided to do this series called Framework Seasonal, which was a continuation of the same idea that the releases are not themed. Uh, I don't give any constraints. To the artists, it's in a way it should, it's sort of like a review. It's just, you know, what is happening in this community that we are all a part of? What are people doing? What do they think is important? Um, what experiments are they trying? What trends are they following? Rather than me saying, okay, I want everybody to use water sounds or it's, it's up to you what you do and put on this release because it's the community's release. I think that's 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 a really important point just to come in there because over time, I think your radio show, I think Framework has become a, an incredibly important kind of platform for lots of artists who are working with field recordings. I remember getting the email about the 250th show kind of commemoration uh, CD and I, like the release and I, I was really excited I was like oh you know I'm part of something and a thing is going to be made and I'm going to be on it with all the other people for whom this this radio show is is important so it is it's kind of like making something concrete out of that community function of the radio show from um, the beginning of framework 250 until this last the last issue seven of framework seasonal there have been no repeated artists. There's never, no one has had two appearances, um, except for one artist um, who was very important to Framework, who sadly passed away. So Joe Stevens, um, as a commemoration, had a second track that he had sent me released on a later edition of Seasonal. But the idea was always that there are always more artists getting involved, new artists emerging, um, and it didn't seem fair to take up space with artists who've already been a part of this project um, when I could give that space to somebody who's still chomping at the bit to, to get involved and, and to put something out there and to be heard. Um, at the same time, Framework 250 now was over five years ago. So having an opportunity to look back at some of the artists who were involved so long ago also seemed like an interesting endeavor. And so for Framework 500, I went back to the artists, to all of the artists, and um, some of whom I, I have not heard from in a long time or have not been working so much with sound anymore or at least not with field recording. But um, I managed to get in touch with everybody and uh, offered them again to kind of give me a new piece, so a new 
look at what's happened with them and their work in the last five years and for it to be a part of this new project. And about 30 of them uh, accepted. You've already said a little bit about how the Framework 500 release uh, mostly contains submissions by artists who had previously contributed to Framework 250. But are there any themes running through or is that the, the main theme that unifies the material? I, I didn't define any themes. I didn't ask for anything in particular. I didn't even say, I, I mean, pe the first question usually from people is, oh, do you want um, compositional work or should it be untreated straight field recordings? And I didn't even say that. Um, most of what I got was composed in some way or at least performed, um, but there are still a handful of, of raw recordings at, such as your own um, in there. Um, I think it's a really good mix. Um, you know, I, I think the recordings, I, yeah, I think it worked worked out well, the mix of, of how many people are sending um, untreated recordings. Some are composed, but lightly. So there's still, there's still a very um, almost ethnographic sense to some of them. And some are completely manipulated beyond any recognition. So the, the whole gamut still of, of what's done within this community is, is there and represented. On the CD itself is just the track list, um, one URL, a little bit of basic information and some thanks. But the detailed liner notes are on the website. Uh, frameworkradio.net slash framework 500. Each artist um, basically was given as much space as they wanted for notes, uh, images, um, links, whatever they have. Um, so all of that information is there about all of the tracks and also a lot of further recordings from the paper mill and the printing press both are there. So there's only there's only room for one recording from each place on the release, but on the website, I think there are eight um seven or eight from each location, seven or eight, like five minute recordings from each uh, location. As Patrick said there, Framework began being broadcast over a decade ago and earlier this summer it had its 500th show to commemorate this milestone of independent radio programming and to raise funds for the continuation of the show, Patrick compiled a special release, a copy of which can be obtained from the Framework website in exchange for making a donation. I am really proud to be included in that release and it's special to me because Framework has been an important platform for my work with sounds over the years and because I really believe in what Patrick is doing with the show. Framework radio show has never had any sort of official funding or sponsorship. You can set up a regular donation to the show, but in general, Framework Radio Show is run on coffee, goodwill, and uh, Patrick's amazing commitment to the sounds and the community. So it's very difficult to make money selling audio. And so all of the funds which keep the show going come in the form of listener donations and I think it's amazing that on that basis over 13 years of, of broadcasting and programming has has happened and it, it's really I feel really proud to have been involved with with two of the big fundraising editions that have been created for framework framework 250 and framework 500 there are don there's a donations bar on the right hand side of the website on every page you can choose to make a donation of an amount of your choice. You can donate 40 euros or more, and then I'll get in touch and confirm um, where to send the CD to. Or you can sign up to make a monthly um, contribution, which I really encourage 
um, people who want to support framework to to think about that as a way to do it. You can um, sign up to automatically donate anywhere from 50 euros a month down to one euro a month. And for this um, framework 500 release, if you sign up for a 10 euro a month or more um, subscription, I'll, I'll send you a copy of Framework 500, assuming that you're going to keep your subscription going for at least four months. <laughs> Framework 500 offers a really rich insight into the diverse range of practices within field recording. And it gives a really broad overview of, of all the different things of what what people are doing and documenting with sound. My favourite recording on the release is by Peter Cusack, who I've mentioned on the Knit Sonic podcast before, and it's the sound of a camel being milked. I just love it because it's a piece of sonic documentary of something that is a very everyday sound uh, in, in another part of the world. And it, and it just gives me this insight into this agricultural context of, of which I have no hands-on kind of knowledge or experience. I revisited my Estonian field recordings to create a track for Framework 500. Madder Fermenting is my track and the recording is exactly that. In 2012, I did a residency in Estonia themed around exchanging sounds and artefacts from different areas of our respective wool industries. So I bought sounds and objects from the British wool industry and I travelled all around Estonia exchanging and sharing those sounds and artefacts from the British wool industry for sounds and artefacts of the Estonian wool industry. I ran workshops looking at clothing. I researched textiles in Estonian National Museum. I ran a dyeing workshop that I also recorded. Um, and as part of this kind of spirit of exchange for that workshop, I bought along some homegrown dried madder roots. I really wanted to bring something from my own garden, um, something really of me which I had produced myself um, because I don't, alas, have my own sheep. Otherwise, I would have bought the fleece of my own sheep uh, as part of this exchange. But not having that, uh, I did the next best thing and bought some plants with which to dye wool. For those of you who've never heard of madder, it's a sprawling plant with roots that yield a whole range of 
red shades. Um, it's You get a better colour if you dry the roots out first rather than dyeing with them fresh. And you need to add calcium carbonate to the water when to, to the dye bath when you're making when you're dying with it and I've also found that the plant itself is also a bit happier if you add lime to the soil when you're growing it so for whatever reason madder seems to enjoy slightly alkaline conditions uh, when you're when you're dying with madder roots you should keep the temperature below 60 degrees celsius because if your dye bath gets hotter than that then the color um, that you get ends up being a sort of dirty brown color um, and it's those lower temperatures that give you these brilliant bricky reds that like super rich terracottery reds uh, for which madder is famous so i had this special dye bath uh, at, made up with my madder roots and it was being heated for a workshop situation and then it was cooling down and then I would reheat it again. But it was never getting super hot. And uh, and and over the course of a week or so, it started to ferment. I suppose if you take any sort of organic uh, matter and heat it up, but don't really heat it up, then you kind of encourage bacterial growth. Um, and you don't kill it off because it doesn't get to a boiling temperature. So, and, and that was what was happening with, with the madder roots. So this is the sound of madder roots fermenting between dyeing sessions in a metal pan in the Mox Centre for Art and Social Practice in rural Estonia. And what I love is that you can also hear the world around Mox reflecting acoustically off the metal sides of the dye pot. The birds, kids playing outside, that kind of thing. You can hear all of that as well as the fizzy, fermenting, maddery sound. So that is my track on the Framework 500 release. Another track I want to talk about on the release is called Echo and it's by Keith de Mendonca. I hope I've said that correctly. Keith says, when I travel, I often search out sounds from similar types of places and many of those captured sounds themselves have been resounding in those localities for tens or even hundreds of years. The evening echo man is still on his corner outside the general post office in Cork City each afternoon. The 
clock mechanism that turns the four-faced liar has been ticking and talking since 1854. The temple chanting and church masses have echoed in the same buildings for hundreds of years. Time is passing a drop at a time. So many echoes. And then he's listed the sound sources. Dripping tap. Um, that's in a temple in Malaysia. A road sign flapping in the wind. Also recorded in Malaysia. Newspaper salesman. Cork. Island. Silk loom. Bangkok, Thailand, monks lifting poles, uh, that's in a monastery in India, shaking fortune-telling sticks, Singapore. and hooping in a temple in Sri Lanka, monks chanting, that's in a monastery in India, Sunday church service, Old Goa, India, St Anne's church bell and clock mechanism, Cork, Ireland, nuns chanting, that's in a monastery in India. So he's gone to lots of sort of kind of religious sites, but all, in all different places and in all different societal country contexts. Um, and he's found somehow similarities um, and kind of ceremony in common in these different places. And for me, the way he's put this together contains that sense of sound recording technology as a way of recording the texture of our experience because there's like lots of different places and it, and each recording is quite it tells you a lot about the volume of the space the size of the, each space the the kinds of things that were happening there it's really sort of textural and descriptive and in going to all of those different places and recording in them there's this sense of the recorder as a companion to the ear as it moves through distant and familiar lands. And I really relate to what he says about traveling with a recorder, and especially the part about often recording the same sorts of places when traveling with a microphone. Because I suppose it, even if each place you go to is different, you're the same, your style, your inclinations, your aesthetic, your own interest will filter your experiences and so I found that kind of interesting how he's really just talking about subjectivity and going to different places but still being you and hearing and caring about and recording and documenting the things that feel like your things in that place I suppose whenever I go somewhere I always end up I like recording bells love I have a thing about bells and I really like taking photos of bricks because I just love how everywhere you go in the world the bricks are distinctive 
So I, I suppose I just felt a kind of affinity with that piece on Framework 500. Finally, I just love that you can hear the actual sounds of the release itself being created. Um, we'll, we'll listen to me and Patrick talking about that now just to explain what I mean a little bit better. You know, I've seen from Framework 250 and throughout the Framework seasonal series and of course with my own work as Murmur, um, of course it's becoming more and more difficult to sell physical uh, releases, especially CDs, especially CDRs. Um, so when I came to this idea of making another large release like Framework 500, my initial question was how to release it. And for practical reasons, it became apparent that still a, a physical object was going to work best. It's hard to use um, MP3 files online as a fundraising tool. That was one issue. And things like, you know, alternative physical things like USB sticks or um, were very expensive, basically. So then I began to think about what makes uh, these days a physical release, a CD or vinyl release, a worthwhile endeavor. And that becomes the object itself. You know, the object itself has to be something uh, special, has to be a part of the release rather than just the sounds on the CDs, or there's no point really in making an object. For years already, I've been working with a local paper mill in South Estonia, in a small town called Rapina. They, they make mostly packaging and reinforcement for, for wrapping around industrial objects, and, but they also make a very small profitless series of like artists' paper, drawing paper, painting paper, all recycled fiber, um, and they do this basically because the guy who runs the mill, uh, Michael Pedima, just, you know, he wants to. He wants to make this stuff. He wants to have um, artist materials available. He wants to support projects that are happening. Um, so he's always kept that part of the mill going. So um, when I was looking for paper to make the sleeve for Framework 500, I already had a sort of folding pattern in mind that I wanted to use. I went to talk to Michael. Um, we talked about options, we looked at some paper options, and it turned out that the paper weight that was going to work best for me, they didn't have in stock then. And I thought, oh, okay, that's too bad. What am I going to do? And Michael just kind of said, well, you know what? We uh, have to make more of this because we need to have it in stock. I probably wouldn't have done it until later in the year, but let me see what I can do. And two days later, I got an email from him that he'd scheduled my paper to be made. I needed 500 sheets of it. He scheduled something like 10 tons of this paper to be manufactured in the paper mill two weeks from that date. <laughs> Just basically so I could have my 500 sheets. And of course, they're going to sell the rest of it, but they didn't need it yet. And it was just an amazing thing for him to decide to do. And because they were going to manufacture it at, at this junction so that I could have some, in discussion with him, it came to light that he would uh, be perfectly fine with me uh, being there on the day of manufacture with my microphones um, as up close as I wanted to be um, so that I could record the entire process of making this paper and so that I could use the recordings of the paper sleeve paper being made on the release itself.
I love that so much. Like you opened it, you open up the CD and it says, the first and last tracks on this release are recordings of the actual process of producing this sleeve. Um, which are, it's just so pleasing to have the, you know, the sounds, the source, the origins of this material object audible within it. That was the thing. And he also then put me in touch with um, Lemet Kaplinski, who runs Studio Tartuensis in Tartu, which is where we printed the sleeve. Um, they use old historic um, letterpress machines. Um, and in talking to him, it came to light that I would also be able to record the printing process. So that's how I ended up with this whole archive of the recordings of the, the making of the paper and the printing of the words on the sleeve and was able to put, as, as you mentioned, the, um, the printing press at the end of the release and the print paper mill at the beginning. It makes me think, what about making a, a release where the whole release is just the sounds of the production of the release, rather than, I mean, this is a, a different project, but, you know, you could, you could record the manufacturing of the discs, uh, the making of the paper, the printing of the sleeve, and just listen to the, it's like a, a snake eating its own tail. Right. And I think that's something that I think about a lot with my work with um, with wool and the sounds of wool and the sounds of textile production because for me, following uh, following the processes that begin with a sheep in a field and end up with a garment, there's something very satisfying about being able to hear and kind of foreground these manufacture processes that are very often kept in the background. So Framework 500 represents a sonic snapshot of a community of artists collected around this radio show that Patrick has run for so long. And for me, it's super exciting to talk to Patrick about sound recording itself, one of the practices central to our work, but also to much of the work by other artists featured in the release. Because in this podcast we're celebrating Eddie, my little portable digital recorder, my Edirol RO9, I thought you might like to hear some recording stories, not just from me, but also from Patrick, about how we find and collect our sounds. This episode of the Nitsonic podcast is all about my little Edirol RO9 digital recorder which, and I know I've got a bigger recorder that's better and it's got quieter preamps and bigger microphones and fancier tech but I often don't have that with me because it's kind of annoying to carry it around whereas the Edirol has just been everywhere with me on all kinds of adventures and I wondered if you had any instances where 
it was just luck of you and your little handy recorder were in a great listening situation. I mean, it, there are countless examples. Like you say, I, I, I carry my um, small, I have a Sony uh, PZM M10, the smallest, I think the smallest recorder Sony makes. I carry it in my bag all the time or in my pocket if I don't have a bag. Um, I have a pair of contact microphones that travel with it that are on the mini jack, so I can plug that in. I have a little pair of old, slightly broken binaurals that are um, plug-in power on a mini jack that I can plug in. And then often I'm just using, like right now, the built-in mics. I always have it with me. And of course, like you say, I don't, you know, I have a much better rig. In fact, I have access to two much better rigs that I carry around when I have a reason to, but I don't have them with me all the time. And being a field recordist is, is usually about discovery. You know, you, you, don't, you don't record because you go out to record. You record because you're living your life and you stumble upon something. Ventilation pipes on ferry boats and um, snow falling on rose bushes. And the, I always say to people that, you know, you can, it doesn't matter what equipment you have or certainly what equipment you have with you at the time a field recordist's most important tool is their ear. And um, if you have your ears with you, that's all that really matters. And then what you discover, you can capture with, with whatever you happen to have. And, uh, and you'll be happy to have it. Just being tuned in to listening to sounds when you're walking around can reveal just amazing, amazing discoveries. And it, like, I think the one I can think of most recently that happened for me was I was walking, there's a very busy intersection on the A33 road and there's a little pedestrian crossing. And as I cross, I noticed that there was this amazing clanging sound. And there's this a very, very, very tall lamppost. And I think something must be loose inside. And when it's really windy, it's just making this incredible, yes, amazing clanging cable sound. The knowledge of the sound came from just walking about and listening before any, you know, before any other kind of, and because it was a busy road intersection and there's cars on either side, it's quite a public place. I felt a bit funny going with a massive rig. So, so I was able to just sneak in with the tiny recorder and, uh, and record it that way. I guess when I was thinking about that question of like having your recorder with you and finding things by chance, I was thinking that maybe it would be an opportunity to hear about some of your recordings and um, maybe to play some of the ones that you've put on the Appery sound map. And one that always jumps to mind when I think of you is the amazing recording of the spontaneous fermentation that you recorded in, uh, in Belgium. Was that a case where you just heard a sound? That's exactly what happened. And that was recorded with this very same Sony PZM M10 recorder. I was on a holiday with some family. We were touring the Cantillon uh, Brewery in, in Brussels, which, is, um, which practices spontaneous 
fermentation, which means there's no extra yeast added to the brew. The yeast that makes all of their beer lives in the walls of this building. Um, and as we were passing through, we were being given a guided tour, and as we were passing through the hall where the giant casks of beer are um, in their stage of final fermentation, they're in the cask. The cask has a cork lightly in the top so that um, insects and other things can't get in, but the gas can still escape from the fermentation process. One barrel was fermenting away um, quite severely and uh, making that incredible noise as the gas pushed up past the cork. And luckily, I had my little recorder in my pocket. I asked permission, actually, um, to go back after the tour so that I could be alone in that space and just prop my recorder up there and leave it, and that's what I did. I love that, the thing with the little recorder as well. One of the things I've been doing quite a lot is strapping it using cable ties onto the bottom of my bird table and then just going inside the house. And you can just leave it somewhere if you can find it. Because the microphones are inbuilt, you don't have to secure tons of cables. And if you can just keep the recorder somewhere secure, you can get like, you can get amazing recordings from just leaving it somewhere. I've been using um, old um, bicycle the inner tubes inside the tire that have burst and cutting them up into strips and they work very well to tie, tie things to things or tie contact microphones to tree branches or recorders to bird baths, I'm sure. You know, you've got an endless supply as long as you keep cycling. So do you, do you have to cut them once you've tied them? I guess it's difficult to untie rubber. No, it's okay. I mean, they ha they hold very well, but if you don't tie it too tight, then you can undo them afterwards. But if you, you know, you could also just cut them. Tips and tricks of field recordists. <laughs> I think I was with, I was there with Udo, uh, with Udo Noll, the, the producer, the curator of this uh, Apari sound map, um, for, I think I was helping him with a workshop there. I forget exactly, but I remember distinctly walking through this garden 
uh, I don't know the geography in Berlin well, so I don't remember where I was, but somewhere pretty central in the sort of garden surrounding a church that was under construction. And it was the tiniest little sound, if you can imagine. In a, I mean, Berlin isn't the loudest city in the world, but it's still an urban space. And just walking through this garden, there was this tiny little sound of snowflakes hitting the dried leaves on a rose bush that were still, that hadn't fallen off. And it was just this, like, these little these tiny little noises and um, and I had my small recorder with me and I was able I can't remember if it might even have been uh, with contact microphones that I recorded that but yeah luckily uh, I had some time to stop there and record it You know, I think it's very important to recognize um, the to recognize every space as a sonic space. In if you're working in the realm of field recording, um, you know, a, a lot of the work becomes about traveling to exotic locations and recording, you know, um, amazing wildlife that no human has has encountered before, or you know, the, the melting glaciers and all of these things are amazing. But, you know, we live in these spaces and the, the, the sonicity of our domestic space is something that has always fascinated me. And most of the recordings I make, because we talk about this, um, this element of discovery, of just having your ears open, and you spend most of your time in, in your own domestic world. Um, and so having your ears open there and making these discoveries there um, has always been a, an important and fascinating thing to me, you know, like the just in this house, you know, I've I've recorded, you know, my turntable spinning with no record on it. I've recorded my uh, rain gutters countless times. I've recorded the rain falling on the old television antenna attached to the outside of of our house. I've recorded, you know, the, the ventilate. There's just so much just here, you know. I don't need to go anywhere to find to find these sounds. I can just go downstairs, you know. We spoke there about the Apple sound map created by our mutual friend Udo Noll, to which uh, both myself and Patrick have contributed many, many sounds. I'll put links to the Apple sound map and Patrick's websites on my own website at knitsonic.com. K-N-I-T-S-O-N-I-K.com. Knitsonic. Knitsonic. <laughs>
in the meantime, um, there are hundreds of hours of audio created by sound artists and field recordists from all over the world and archived at frameworkradio.net. Most of them do not include any knitting content, but I have found many framework shows to be a beautiful, sometimes challenging, always interesting accompaniment to my knitting. Speaking of which, it's been all about the swatching here at Knit Sonic HQ. Um, by swatching, I specifically mean the process of casting on a swatch and trying out different patterns, colours and shading schemes um, that I describe in the Knit Sonic Stranded Colour Works source book. The Knit Sonic Stranded Colour Works source book Shows you a special way to think and knit and look it shows you how to translate things that you love into knits to make colour work from biscuit tins and plants and roads and bricks. The Knit Sonic Stranded Colour Works Source Book. If you've not heard of it, you could take a look. So while I've been thinking about swatching, I've written quite a lot of posts over at knitsonic.com and people have added some really great comments there um, with their different perspectives on whether or not to swatch. Do they like swatching? They don't like swatching. This is what they do instead of swatching. They think it's a waste of yarn to do swatching. They think it's a brilliant idea to do swatching. There's a whole mix of different perspectives about swatching. So you know, if you're interested in this idea of creative process, knitting, uh, not necessarily always with an end thing in mind, but knitting as a way of finding your own means of expression, you might enjoy reading the, the swatching posts there. And there are also some really beautiful examples of knitted swatches, knitted using the Knitsonic system uh, for the Frangipani swatch along I want to make a special shout out here. If you're not sure what I'm on about, we set up the Frangipani swatch along with the idea that it would be really interesting to see how a group of knitters responded to this same inspiration source. So uh, we asked my talented brother, Fergus Ford, to select a photo from which we could work together as a kind of group. And he chose this amazing photo that he took of frangipani caterpillars in Barbados. And they're really, they're like black and they have a super neon yellow bright stripe on them and a little red dotty head. And these, and they apparently make amazing munching noises. So alas, I don't have any recordings of that or I would be sharing them with you immediately. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the, the, the frangipani caterpillars photo was the source of inspiration for a bunch of us and um, I and we we each took the same photo with the same sort of set of photos and then developed our own stranded color work patterns um, palettes motifs through looking at them and it was really interesting to see how differently we and, and individually we each responded to that how differently how uniquely and individually everybody sees the world so I want to do a special shout out here to my comrades who joined in with that swatch along uh, I'm using your Ravelry names and I hope I'm saying them correctly hurrah for Innes One, Fiber Frid, Julish Cam, 
and Sarosa. Thanks so much for joining with the Frangie Pally Swatch Along. It was so much fun to swatch with you and I loved seeing what you created. And I still keep thinking that there must be, I wonder if there's an amazing way that we could combine the best of all of our different ideas into some sort of collective um, garment. I haven't figured out what yet, but I just really, I love that we, that we did that together. So thank you very much for joining in with the swatch along and for you and wow the amazing work i will put some photos of the swatches that got created uh, on the knit sonic blog and please do go and look at them um even if you skim through all the other show notes go and look at the amazing amazing knitted patterns and colors and shading that um that that were created in response to the very brightly colored exciting bayesian uh, caterpillars photographed um by my brother Fergus Ford. I'm working on another swatch based on the greatest hip hop artist of all time, Missy Elliott. I'm Missy on the microphone. One day I will do you a whole show on why I love this artist and her music so, so much. But basically I'm in the grips of an epic fangirl moment and Missy Elliott is headlining Bestival this year on the Isle of Wight. I want to go and watch her perform and I thought what better homage than some kind of giant outsized hip hop wardrobe inspired garment in stranded colour work. I mean, it's obvious, right? I'm Missy on the microphone. At first, I thought it should just be purple because Missy Elliott uses a lot of purple in her stage lighting. Um, there's a lot of purple in her wardrobe and she chose purple as the colour for her signature custom-made Lamborghini Diablo. My Lamborghini has the custom-made seats that are two-tone colours. Uh, and then I have my name down in the floor mats and stuff like that. You got to do it baller style, pimpstress, gangstress. If you're going to get a Lamborghini, you got to do it up. And that's the way I did it. So, but just just this idea of purple was way too vague um, as a beginning for coming up with stranded color work ideas. I just couldn't make any, I just couldn't start um, with such a broad beginning. So to narrow it down, I started looking at the artwork for a specific album under construction. And the themes for that album are very much around self-examination, trial and error, not trying to be perfect, doing your best and having the humility to know when you're wrong. And I think that swatching is also about trial and error, not being too perfectionist. Um, doing your best and saying, hey, this isn't working. I'm going to try something else. So I took the palette for my Missy Elliott Knit Sonic swatch from the palette in the album artwork. Um, and, and that has a lot of really bold, hot colours in it. It's got a lot of graffiti and kind of, yeah, it's like a really hot pink, a bright blue, sort of really eye-searing white, hard black there's some greys in there and this kind of orange and that very vivid urban dirty graffiti street like it just it's so great it just looks like this amazing well it is this amazing hip-hop album and it's got this kind of um under construction construction site tape 
features quite a lot in the in the design as well. I decided to use words as a key element for my design because Missy Elliott is is all about the words. You know, she's a she's a rapper and a and a singer. Words are her thing. So I decided to work with a phrase that appears in many many Missy Elliott songs. This is a Missy Elliott exclusive. love the way she says exclusive and I am not even going to try because it's going to sound so rubbish in my Croydon accent but she just has this really rich delicious southern pronunciation exclusive and it feels like she's really enjoying the word exclusive and I, I really like that idea and I also think that you know to be fair I don't think the demand for a Missy Elliott inspired giant garment in stranded colour work is going to be massive so I'm not going to write up the pattern for for this thing that I'm making it's a one time only thing I'm just going to make it for me I'm going to wear it to best of all it's going to be awesome so it, it kind of it is a Missy Elliott exclusive um, in the knit sonic designing uh, line of things and once I had my yarn shades and I had my words charted I cast on and got deep into the swatching, just going round and round, trying out all the motifs. However, I quickly realised that there is no way I can get a massive garment made in time for September, working at a gauge of seven stitches to the inch. So I'm very loath to, to admit this, but I've had to move away from my beloved Jameson and Smith Shetland two-ply jump away, just for this one time only experiment at, and to try and meet my deadline of having this thing knitted in time for, for best of all. So I'm working with another British yarn. Uh, it's Aragon yarn and it's grown in the UK for it's, it's Romney yarn. So it's really lustrous and shiny and it has this kind of pearlescent quality which actually seems really quite fitting. It's a bit shiny and a bit blingy. Um, which which feels kind of right for Missy Elliott, to be honest. And it's um, the staple's very long in the Romney fleece, and the way it's it's spun. This yarn is spun in Italy, and it's a single, um, so there's just one ply, and it's the way it's been spun. It's very has really retained the softness and the shininess of the Romney fleece but because the staple's really long it's actually quite difficult to break it or pull it apart so it's a really yes yeah, re I'm really enjoying knitting with it it's going to be a very super super warm thing though obviously being made in a very airily spun wool chunky weight two strands together I, I hope best of all I hope it's like super cold on the Isle of Wight that's all I can say and obviously, you know, working with a different yarn, I've now got a, a very different palette. So I'm building on the things I learned with my Jameson and Smith two-ply jumper weight palette about the shades. And uh, and I'm continuing some of those ideas with the, the new palette offered by the Aragon 
yarn that I'm working with. In knitting news, I am cracking on with that in hopes of going to best of all this year clad in epic Missy Elliott woolly words in 100% British wool spun in Italy. Boom! This is a Missy Elliott exclusive. Briefly, in other news, I've been collecting stories from around Oxford for my project The Fabric of Oxford, and I've been recording around the Isle of Portland in Weymouth for the Knit Sonic Audible Textures resource, my forthcoming album. That trip to Portland was really important because I needed a final set of field recordings um, for the track based on seaside socks. And if you've got the Knit Sonic Stranded Colourwork source book, you'll know that that's the last inspiration source that I talk about in the chapter on things as an inspirational source. And for those of you who've not heard of the Knit Sonic Audible Textures resource, it's an album that accompanies the Knit Sonic Stranded Colourwork source book. And it sort of explores all the same inspiration contexts that are shared in the book, but from the point of sound. And I talk in the book about Portland in the island of Weymouth. Uh, and I talk about some socks that I made that reminded me of that landscape. And I really needed to go back there and make some sound recordings. And that was the last little bit of recordings that needed to be done for me to now have all the source recordings required to crack on with the album. So I'm really pleased I got that done. I will say more about Seaside Socks, about Fabric of Oxford about the Missy Elliott madness in the next episode of the podcast. Uh, in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this, as usual, extremely long episode of Knit Sonic. Thank you so much for patiently waiting for each instalment and for joining me with such enthusiasm when I do finally get them out and up and in iTunes and out there in the world. I love hearing what you make of the Knit Sonic podcast and I hope my sounds and my words are a pleasant accompaniment to whatever you're doing. Thanks so much to Patrick McGinley uh, for joining us for this episode. Uh, I do hope you'll visit the Framework Radio Show website to hear some of the amazing shows in the archive. Yeah, the show Framework Radio, uh, there's a new episode every week. Um, it airs on 12 radio stations all over uh, in the UK on two stations on Resonance FM in London and on Sound Art Radio in South Devon. Um, so you can find it on plenty of broadcast schedules. Um, you can download the podcast through iTunes or you can just listen uh, to each show uh, as it appears on the Framework website. It's also on Mixcloud. Um, the various URLs you can use to find it. The most important is www.frameworkradio.net. You can go and look there for each new show as it appears. Um, on Mixcloud, we're at mixcloud.com slash framework underscore radio. And we're also on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash framework radio. All one word there. Um, so go and listen to the show. 
Um, like I said, you can support the show via the donations bar on the right-hand side from the Framework website. You can see how to record a Framework intro from the intros tab on the Framework website, or you can get in touch with us. You can email info at frameworkradio.net. I really wanted to talk about Framework in this episode of the Sonic podcast because within the many hundreds of sounds I've recorded over the years with my trusty Edirol R09 recorder, also known as Eddie, um, many have been broadcast there. Uh, so, you know, thank you, Patrick, for coming on the Sonic podcast today and also for offering a home to so much of my work and to the work of so many other artists who work with sound. I'd like to play out with this recording of my Huntley and Palmer's record, which was digitised by John Shaw of Shaw Sounds. If you're not sure what I'm on about, feel free to revisit Sonic 8, the Turbo Thank You episode of the Sonic podcast, which, like all the episodes, can be found at knitsonic.com. I look forward to hearing you soon. I'm Felicity Ford, also known as Felix, and you've been listening to the Sonic podcast. We're off to ready, hooray, hooray, our monthly and promise to spend the day. We're longing to reach this wonderful town, to save their deceitful crisp and brown. From the ovens before it is displayed, you see how these well famous biscuits are made. And now for our greatest dinner and tea, the biscuits you must have are eight and three.